oh god it was it was so different to china i mean china was vibrant alive i mean even within you know definite it's an authoritarian country with limit, limits but the soviet union that which is a right at the it was the beginning of the gorbachev era i didn't even want yeah. to go to the soviet union actually before things began to liberalize but i thought i'll go and have a look and it was the most depre- it was a police state i mean that was the difference yeah. china is not yeah. a police state i mean there are you know there are very definite police controls but it's really had a completely different atmosphere one felt surveyed one felt you know everybody who i talked to obviously felt scared and 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 you know and very constrained in what they could say which i feel like i've never had in china a totally different atmosphere totally different atmosphere <laughs> Hello, welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare in the UK. In today's episode, Phil speaks to Sean Sayers, one of the founders of the Radical Philosophy Journal, established in the early 1970s, about Marxism and radicalism in the US, the UK, Russia, and China and about the significance of Hegelian Marxism. Just a note, this episode was recorded some weeks back and faced some technical problems on Phil's end, which have since been resolved, but nevertheless, apologies for the audio quality. So today I'm talking to Sean Sayers, and this is part of the Canterbury Tales, I suppose, for this podcast of discussions that I've had with um, colleagues, my former colleagues from the University of Kent. Um, Sean Sayers is emeritus now, emeritus professor of philosophy at the University of Kent, but also holds titles at other institutions, including associate professor of political theory at the other university in Canterbury, which is Canterbury Christchurch University. And he's also a visiting professor of philosophy at Peking University in Beijing. His books include Marx and Alienation, which was published in 2011, An Introduction to Plato's Republic, which was published in 1999, Marxism and Human Nature, which was published in 1998, as well as works on Mark Hegel and Marx, published one which was published in 1980, and also a book called Reality and Reason, Dialectic and Theory of Knowledge, which was published in 1985. And these works have been translated into many languages, including Chinese, German, Japanese, Korean, Russian, and Turkish. Now, Sean is also um, renowned for being one of the founders of the um, journal Radical Philosophy, as well as the more recent, um, but no less uh, successful and important in many ways, um, online Marx and Philosophy of review, review of Books. And we'll be talking about both of these in due course. Um, but first of all, um, welcome to the show, Sean. Many thanks, Phil. Glad to be here. So you're British, but it says on your, if anybody looks you up on the internet, it'll say you were born in the US. 
So how did how did that come about? Well, I I was born in the U.S. because my parents were in the U.S. Um, but and I was born in New York, and my uh, my parents were both left wing. Uh, my mother was a communist. Uh, my father was um, left, he was a sort of left wing, but not I don't think a communist. Uh, but he worked on uh, the sort of struggle against fascist in- infiltration in America. Uh, he was involved then, uh, he wrote a book about uh, the uh, Allied um, in- attempt to sort of uh, invade and stop the Russian Revolution. He-, he wrote a number of left-wing journalistic books. And then he was working on uh, NBC television uh, drama, and he was blacklisted. So In the 50s? In, no, in the, well, in the late, very late 40s. Right. Um, we ca- I, I don't exactly know the sequence of this, but my, my mother, myself and my brother came to Europe. We, my, my mother was uh, born in America. She was born in Vermont, but she was of Italian, from an Italian family. And her father was a very uh, well-known anarchist. Uh, who, yeah, uh, called, uh, called Luigi Galliani. I and wanted he... to ask you about this because um, what I know, I mean, we've spoken about this before, but I know that you've had a book published recently about Luigi Galliani with the tagline, The Most Dangerous Anarchist in America. That's right. Um, he was given that, yeah. <laughs> that title by the Department of Justice, uh, but he was deported. So my family had a, any, and my father was blacklisted, as I say. Uh, we we came to Europe. My my father then followed us. My parents were separating at the time, uh, but he was deport. Uh, he was blacklisted. He came to try and get work in Europe. We eventually settled in England. Uh, me and my brother and and my mother, and uh, she decided not to go back. By that time, McCarthyism was in full uh, go, and and life for our other friend, our left-wing friends in America become very difficult. She decided to settle here, and we decided to settle here. And I'm very glad we did. This country provided a haven where, uh, you know, where America would have, I mean, it would have been very difficult for us, I think. That. So reversing, reversing the trend for many kind of, um, many intellectuals going in the opposite kind of direction, in the 1940s from Europe to America. And um, in this case, it was from America to Europe. Correct. Yes, that's right. Uh, But I mean, as I say, for political reasons, and we weren't alone. I mean, people, especially in films and television, you know, we had many friends in London uh, who were exiles from McCarthyism. Uh, You know, there were lots of them. And my father worked in television here. He had to work under a pseudonym. Yeah. Uh, but there were quite a number of American uh, exiles from McCarthyism working in the media here, so it wasn't that unusual. There was a two-way flow. <laughs> no, indeed, and um, it's that kind of like that kind of America to Europe or America to Britain flow that's often um, uh, overlooked or forgotten about. Um, but yeah. I wanted to ask you a bit about Luigi Galliani, partly because I mean you've um, you've helped to. Uh, Kind of co-write a book with um, with a co-author on on your grandfather as an American, an Italian American anarchist. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about him. 
Yeah, sure. First of all, I didn't co-write it. He wrote it entirely. I mean, I provided him with some uh, research I did. I was, I got very, I, I didn't know anything about him, unfortunately, when my mother was still alive. And she didn't talk very much about him. But uh, I got very interested in him after his, after my mother died. Uh, and uh, started doing research and realized I was just out of my depth. I had to learn Italian for a start. Uh, and I just didn't know the historical background. And then I was put in touch with a man called Tony Center, who is an anarchist historian living in Bologna. And he was wanted to write a book about uh, my grandfather. So I helped him, basically. I helped him, but he did all the writing. He was remarkably uh, well, you know, did excellent research, was very well uh, you know, was very well equipped to do this and wrote an extremely good book, I think. I trans—I translated it. I helped translate it uh, into English. From Italian into English, sure. Yeah, it was written in Italian. And I translated, I mean, well, I didn't, I, I, the publisher commissioned a translation, an English translation, which was, I would say, completely incompetent. Right. Uh, uh, I mean, it clearly wasn't written by a, a native English speaker, and I ha and I started to correct it. I said I'd help sort of smooth it out for the publisher, but I ended up, well, in effect, retranslating the book. So that that's that was my contribution to it. So listeners will find um, our listeners will find a link in the show notes um, to the English translation of the book by Tony Center, and um, which Sean helped to translate. So could you tell us a bit about why why the Department of Justice called your grandfather the most dangerous anarchist in America? Uh, sure, uh, he was uh, he was a very colourful character. He'd been he was born in Italy. Um, he was uh, uh, very active from a young age, uh, was arrested in, in Italy, uh, helping demonst demonstrations in Carrara, the, the, the marble quarry place, and uh, sent into internal exile, uh, which is what the Italians did with a lot of their uh, left-wing people. He there met my grandmother, uh, Maria, and they escaped from, it was a tiny little island where he was being held in internal exile, Pantelleria, uh, escaped, got to America, where he was offered the job of editing one of their, uh, well, probably the most important anarchist journal at the time, La Questione Sociale, in Patterson, New Jersey. But then he was um, involved in a demonstration, Quite, there was a big Italian community there. He was and he was shot in the face uh, and uh, were then accused of resisting arrest and attacking the police, escaped, escaped from uh, arrest, fled yeah. across the Canadian border. Then he sort of slipped back into America and uh, settled in Barry, Vermont, where my mother was born. It's a big, it, there's a big Italian community there of quarry workers. So he had a, and that's where they, the family first lived. Then he moved to um, uh, uh, just outside Boston, where there were even more Italians. He started publishing a newspaper called uh, Kronaka Sovesiva, which means the Subversive Chronicle, which was wow. a very important anarchist. It was by far the biggest anarchist uh, uh, journal at the time. He was best known 
um, for advocating what was called propaganda of the deed. He believed in fighting. The, the, the anarchists were being attacked, deported. Uh, the police and, and the violence against workers' demonstrations in America at the beginning of the 20th century has to be read about to be believed. It was extraordinary. Yeah. These companies hired militia. They hired, they used the, uh, the local armed forces to attack. And my father believed, my grandfather believed in fighting back. Uh, propaganda of the deed meant violent uh, resistance, resistance yeah. with violence. And he was known for that. Uh, and that, I mean, he was the most prominent um, advocate of that. And that's why they regarded him as dangerous. He was, I mean, among his followers were Sacon Vanzetti, who you may have heard of as a very, very yeah, famous indeed, yeah. uh, case. So he was a very prominent anarchist. And after the Second World War, there was a huge, round, I mean, uh, arrest or random, almost random arrest of left-wing people. They were called the Palmer Raids. It was far yeah. worse than McCarthyism. It was yeah. a sort of red scare, anti-red hysteria. He was a arrested at that time and simply deported. I mean, it, it was by a, it was an, a, an administrative process. There was no trial. There was no yeah. evidence produced. It was simply, he was simply deported. Yeah. Um, uh, but he was regard, he was certainly very prominent by then and regarded by the American authorities as uh, yeah, the most dangerous anarchist around. Mm -hmm. he, then, uh, he then, you know, he then, I mean, Mussolini, then he was brought back to Italy, where he started his newspaper again. He was again sent, sent into internal exile and um, was just released at the end of his life and died in Italy. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a fascinating story. And I remember talking to you about it in the process of when you were involved in helping to research it and to translate the Italian. Um, mm. So, like I say, any uh, any of our listeners interested in in finding out more can find a link to, um, to the book in the show notes. Great, good. So you've already mentioned... Um, that your your mother was a Marxist um, and her father was the anarchist you've just been telling us about. Um, but could you perhaps tell us a bit more about what how you became a Marxist? Um, was it kind of uh, following in your mother's, was it the result of family kind of background and influence or was it a process that was um, separate and distinct from that? Well, it was, uh, in the sense, it was to some extent separate and distinct. Um, I mean, I did grow up in a, Marxist household. I was what the Americans call a red diaper baby. You know, I was born in a left-wing environment, but I really reacted against it when I was, uh, certainly the Marxism, um, I had no, uh, when I was uh, at school, I was quite active in CND, in the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. I used to go on marches, go to meetings and so forth, and uh, anti-apartheid. But I wasn't in any way a Marxist. I hadn't read any Marx. I mean, just yeah. because the, the household was so saturated with it, I thought I just wanted to sort of react against that, really. Uh, and I didn't read. And then I studied philosophy at university as an undergraduate. And again, it was, you know, there was no political philosophy, let alone Marx. Marx wasn't. I was told that, uh, you know, when I, was a, when I was a student, Marx is not a philosopher. Uh, he's a 
economists. That's what that was their line. Of course, if he went to the economics department, they said, "Oh, Marx isn't an economist; he's a philosopher." He yeah. got sort of lost in the cracks. He dropped between the cracks of academic departments. Anyway, it was really. I mean, but it was the sixties. I mean, radicalism was very much in the air. And when I was a graduate student then, when I had more time and and space in my my life to read what I wanted to, I did. I started to read Marx, and I found him f- fascinating. So I went on reading Marx, and then I read Hay, and then and I, my my take on it, my interest in it was philosophical. So I started reading Hegel, and uh, that you know, but I came to it quite late as a graduate. <laughs> Yeah, okay. It was part of your philosophy education then, rather than kind of a process of direct politicization. I mean, would that be accurate? Yes, it would. That would certainly be accurate. But it wasn't part of my. It was part of my philo- philosophical self-education. Yeah. It was absolutely not part. I never ever had a course on Marx. As I say, he wasn't regarded as a philosopher. Yeah. And so, what was it that? I mean, what was it philosophically? I suppose that drew you then. Well, I, I'm I, difficult to describe, really. I mean, he is so, you know, when you read Marx, he's so philosophically minded. I mean, there's so, it's so obviously a lot of philosophy in it. And strange enough, the first book of his I read was The Poverty of Philosophy, his critique of Proudhon. I've no idea why I started there. I mean, it was just perhaps it was a book that was lying around, so I read it. And it's a very quirky and strange book, but it's full of stuff about Hegel, about dialectic, and I was interested, so I sort of followed it up. I mean, I, it, it, it intrigued me. It, you know, I, I knew that there. It's a very odd book, the Poverty of Philosophy. It's almost like a series of of separate sort of articles or notes or whatever. But uh, I just knew you can feel that there's a really powerful, interesting mind at work in yeah. Marx. And that's what got me got me interested, very much particularly in the philosophy at first. And I thought it yeah. might help. You know, I was looking for, by the time I was a uh, graduate, I was, you know, I was becoming quite dissatisfied with the philosophy I'd been taught as an undergraduate and looking for ways to criticise it, looking for sort of stuff that would be critical of it. And I was looking in Marx for that, not that I particularly found it there. But anyway, <laughs> Hegel, it was Hegel, really, that, 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 that you know, that, that, that sort of put me onto criti- critical stuff about uh, empiricism and the sort of philosophy I'd been taught. But anyway, no, Marx was, you know, it was the philosophical side of Marx that interested me. So I wanted to ask you a bit about um, this as well, because... Uh, there was, um, I suppose, Hegel kind of came with Marx as part of the new left in the 1960s. And I just wanted to ask a bit about how you, know, how you approached or explored Hegel, how you encountered Hegel in the atmosphere of uh, what I suppose was you know, uh, still very much the peak of analytical philosophy in British academia at the time. Mm. Well, it was a reaction against that. I mean, I guess, first of all, through Sartre, I mean, I got it. I got in. I, I, you know, when I was doing undergraduate, I was hard working and I was trying to do well. So I didn't read much outside what was required. 
um, and kept on the straight and narrow, as it were. But the minute I graduated, I thought I will, I will explore. I will sort of read the things that I haven't been uh, invited to read as a, as an undergraduate. So, I, the, one of the very first things I read was, or tried to read anyway, was Sartre's Being a Nothingness, which is a very, um, it's a book you know which has got great sections in it and completely yeah. incomprehensible sections all mixed yeah. up together. And anyway, I did get through that. And there's quite a lot about Hegel in that. And I think that, you know, I just began to realise that if you wanted something that was quite different from the analytical philosophy I'd been uh, taught, then the sort of, I guess, the existentialist tradition, the Hegelian tradition was where to look. Yeah. And how come, just out of interest, um, now that you mentioned it, how come you didn't become an existentialist? Uh, it always struck me as it, as not, not as, I guess partly because of its extreme individualism. Um, it, it just not as, I mean, the central co concept of Sartre's philosophy is freedom. And it's such an individualistic and sort of voluntaristic account of free. I mean, it's just, you know, you do whatever you, you are, we are absolutely free to do whatever we want. That struck me, that never, I never found that convincing. I thought there's a, a social aspect to human life, which is simply missing in Sartre's philosophy. Nevertheless, I mean, it's a very, it's a very challenging philosophy. It's a very interesting philosophy. It was really the first alternative, as it were, to uh, analytic philosophy that, that that I encountered, but I, I never really found it satisfactory. I knew that there was, you know, other things in human life that 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 exist, and, and existentialism in general, Sartre's in particular, but existentialism in general is a very individualistic, inward philosophy. And I think I was looking for something more social, more political, more outward looking. Yeah. So um, I want to talk in, in due course, I want to talk a bit more about um, Hegel and your views about uh, academic philosophy, broadly speaking. Um, but we'll come to that in due course. Before we go there, uh, this brings us up to, um, I suppose, the, uh, the radical philosophy. So the journal mm. that you helped found. And I was wondering if you could tell us about a bit about that. So it just recently passed its um, 50th anniversary, which was in yeah. October 2022. Um, yeah. And so I was wondering if you could just tell us about, you know, what prompted you to do it, uh, who some of the other founders were, how you set about it, um, and also perhaps uh, reflect on, you know, what, how far they've travelled and where they where they are now. Well, we, when I started teaching, I mean, the, the there'd been a big uh, sort of um, – uh, growth of uh, new staff in, you know, the universities were sort of expanding in this country, a lot of young staff around who'd come through the student movement like I had. Uh, and then, I mean, as a member of staff, you know, I was expected to teach this extremely narrow and dull syllabus of analytic philosophy, which the, my more established colleagues were teaching. And I thought, I can't. And was this at the University of Kent? This was at the University of Kent. It was my first job and my only job, in fact, my only permanent job. Um, and uh, I thought, I can't do this. I mean, I, the, for the prospect of teaching uh, R.M. Hare and Gilbert Ra for the rest of, <laughs> the rest of time <laughs> was simply unendurable. And lots of other people felt that. I mean, you know, and I particularly had two 
colleagues here in Kent. I mean, I'd felt this before, and we'd been talking. You know, I mean, it wasn't wasn't just me alone. But uh, in Kent, there were two colleagues I had: Richard Norman and Tony Skillen, and we all we the three of us felt very much the same way about it, and we we decided we'd try and do something about it. So we called a meeting, which was here in Kent, in my house, in fact, um, and you know, form the plan of uh, producing a journal uh, and uh, and starting and 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 starting a movement for the reform of the philosophy syllabus and of teaching in general, making it less uh, authoritarian, less sort of exam dominated. And we called meetings. It was it 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 got an immediate response. you know, uh, we found it was quite easy then. To produce a journal, it's due to the changes of printing technology. But there's something called photolitho offset printing that just been introduced. I mean, previously you had to have, you know, printing set up in metal type, and it was extremely difficult and expensive to get something printed. But electric typewriters had come in, which produced a very clean copy, and this could be photographed and then run off by a little, a very little machine that was no bigger than a, a duplicator high quality so very cheap so we 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 got secretaries at the we 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 wrote most of the first issue of the journal ourselves and we got it typed up at the university by the secretaries and printed off at the um uh university print unit so then we had 500 copies of this journal the most difficult thing was distributing them by far, yeah. um, but we we sort of advertised what we, we sort of had contacts in various universities, and we distributed through our contacts. And co- a lot of the contacts formed radical philosophy groups. We formed a movement, in effect, which was yeah. which really took off. I mean, I thought we'd be stuck with all these. Uh, boxes of journals in my office, but uh, actually they all sold in a week. It was astonishing. I mean, it was it was an immediate success, and the movement was an immediate success because there was a lot of discontent with how dull and um, uh, you know sort of unconnect. You know, the, the the world was exploding. The Vietnam War, the student movement, uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, it was all happening. Yeah. And philosophy was completely oblivious to this. I mean, it was uh, uh, so, you know, a lot of people were very dissatisfied. There was a lot of intellectual ferment as well uh, going on, which the, the uh, established philosophy was simply closed to, yeah. pos- positively closed to. So a lot of discontent, which we managed to feed into. We were very concerned, though, not just to sort of rabble rouse and sort of stir stir up contrary. You know, we wanted to produce a serious intellectual and scholarly magazine. Even though, yeah. I mean, it was you know, and which 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 it did. I mean, it was became you know a well established journal. Now it's gone on, as you say, for fifty years. Uh, it's changed quite a lot in the process, obviously, as new new people came in and new issues. Uh, came up, um, but it's and it's recently gone. I mean, I dropped out. I I left the editorial board about 
20 years ago now, I guess. So yeah. I really have had little to do with it since then. Um, not be- I had no serious disagreement, but it was sort of going in directions that weren't, weren't my directions. I mean, and I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't feel I had enough energy or uh, ideas really to, to sort of impose my will on it. So I thought best to just let, let things happen in, in, as they were. And that's yeah. continued to be the case. I mean, it's still being published. No, indeed, yeah. So you had um, a subsequent kind of project, which in 2010 you helped set up or led the set up, in fact, the establishment of the Marx and Philosophy Review of Books, which, again, listeners, if they're not familiar with it already, they'll find a link in the show notes, as well as a link to um, Radical Philosophy. Um, But so this was an online venture, and it was, um, I suppose, more explicitly or directly concerned with Marx and Marxism and affiliated, um, you know, affiliated questions, philosophy, politics and society and so on. And and this has also been, it seems to me. I mean, obviously, it's not uh, it's not been as uh, been around as long as radical philosophy, mm-hmm. but it seems to me it's been successful in um, in terms of its uh, you know its status and its readership and the kinds of intellectual debates that it's spurred as well. So, could you mm-hmm. tell us a bit about this project as well? Yes, certainly. Um, yes, it's been uh, very successful. Um, it's actually started we. we there was a after the collapse of the Soviet Union um, in the nineteen nineties, interest intellectual interest in Marxism simply vanished. Um, it was impossible even to run a course on Marx in the university. I mean, I just couldn't get the students. But interest in Marx, intellectual interest in Marx, and the left revived around the turn of the millennium, around two thousand and. Uh, or so, and we started then a small group, a small group of us, sort of Marxist scholars, really Marxists in universities, started a, 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 a group called the Marx and Philosophy Society, which organised seminar seminars and an annual conference in London, which were quite small but quite high powered. They were good, very good meetings, and when I came up for a time, so there was that already going and that that it was never huge but it was you know it was attracted a lot of sort of serious interest and we and um and we published some books out of that um and then when i came up for retirement really i thought well you know why not start a a collection of book reviews simply in the area of i mean it's called marx and philosophy but it's extremely broad virtually anything of theory i mean the way i've Put it in in the in the statement of purpose is anything of theoretical interest to the left really is you know yeah. is, is 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 fair fair is is subject for review so it's a collection of book reviews again that was very successful immediately I did start it single handed I mean this would be impossible it would have been impossible in 1972 when we started radical philosophy which required prints you know print uh, distribution of magazines yeah. and so forth, but by the time of of, of, of um, Marx and Philosophy Review of Books, which is online, um, you know, it, it, the distribution was 
incredibly, you know, you can, it's, it's free, it's worldwide, yeah. it's instant. And um, that was, you know, I mean, made life very much easier. It was possible for one person. It was hard, a lot of work, but I needed, I needed something to do and I stopped teaching and that was my project. I had a lot of experience of running uh, book reviews, of doing book reviews, uh, editing book reviews, because I'd run the book review section of Radical Philosophy, which was a large yeah. part of the journal. Uh, so I knew about sort of doing, you know, organizing book reviews. And, you know, my experience and experience in Radical Philosophy was very hard to get people to write uh, articles. It's very hard to commission articles. People send you articles on stuff they read, but it's very easy to commission people to do book reviews, especially in the areas that they're working on. They positively want to, you know, engage with the latest literature. So it's very easy to get people to do book reviews. Um, and we, uh, you know, it's a collection now over a thousand book reviews on the website of, you know, the, the left literature of the last uh, 15 years. I mean, it's a very complete uh, review of that literature. It's non-sectarian. We've tried to be, uh, you know, uh, open and, and uh, not, you know, I mean, what I was worried about, what were we worried about in the Marx and Philosophy Society too, was that we'd be sort of take, or people from sort of sectarian left groups yeah. would try and take us over. But that, never actually happened i think because we were scholarly and um you know they thought uh, you know not worth not worth wasting the time on our side <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I so it's gone ever since and then i mean once it was i mean then i got other people to help uh with the editing and and then i eventually passed it on so i'm not involved in it anymore i've passed it on to first of all um uh, 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 a research student from uh, Sussex called Anna Engelstadt, who ran it for two or three years, and then now Eric John Russell, who's a, who's a, a, a part-time philosophy teacher in in Germany. I mean, he studied in England. He's uh, but uh, and you know, so it's continuing. It's thriving. Thriving. No, indeed. And I suppose that follows into something that I'd, um, I'd meant, I wanted to ask you um, uh, I, a bit later in our discussion, but I suppose, I mean, it makes sense to ask you now. So I was wondering if, how would you perhaps appraise um, Marxist philosophy and theory today, uh, how far, it, or in the Anglophone world at least, and how far it's evolved um, since your, you know, since your interest and um, since you became a Marxist philosopher yourself, because I mean, one thing that occurs to me, and I'd be interested to hear what you think of it, but it seems to me that there is kind of um, an increased sophistication in terms of Marxist theorizing today. Um, and I'm thinking mm -hmm. of people, and I, you know, I don't know if you, um, you know, have if you. Uh, how far you're familiar with their work, but I'm thinking of people like like now, William Clare Roberts or Martin Hegland. Um, and so there is a sophisticated uh, Marxist theorizing, um, but at the same time, there seems to me to be a paucity of Marxist politics. And those who, who are Marxists or explicitly cast themselves as Marxists, they don't seem to drift very far away from the old social democratic parties that are, you know, kind of less, less and less social and democratic and less and less um, working class. 
So there's mm. like an in, almost an inverse relationship between the intellectual kind of efflorescence of Marxism over the last 10 years or so and um, the paucity of radical politics. So anyway, I mean, I was wondering what you made of that um, and also if you could tell us about how you think Marxist philosophy has uh, developed over over your lifetime and since you kind of um, became involved. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, there is, uh, uh, you know, very, you know, there has been a flowering of theoretical work, not only in on Marx, but in the left in general. I mean, there's been a tremendous sort of resurgence of anarchist, serious anarchist thought. Um, but um, uh, I think that has gone along with, you know, a real decline in in, in politics in political activity on the left uh, and now even the SWP seems to have sort of uh, imploded I mean you know which was by far the biggest I guess of the uh, Marxist groups I mean but if I look back over the whole you know sort of span of my career well when I started in the, in the 60s and 70s and the dominant Marxist group was obviously the Communist Party yeah. uh, uh, the, the you know the particularly in this country, the, the Communist Party that was aligned with the Soviet Union. Um, though my, my, my own, I mean, partly because of my mother, again, my influence of my mother was very sympathetic to Mao and the Chinese. So I had a lot yeah. of input from, from Chinese Marxism and always found that much more sympathetic and much more interesting. But there was a real, you know, there was active uh, politics, uh, Marxist politics in the form of Communist Party politics in the 60s and 70s. And then, with the, well, particularly with, after the collapse of, you know, of the Soviet Union, um, that just dried up. And it hasn't, re and then there was, as I say, the SWP and sort of Trotskyite groups had a, had a certain influence, but even those have diminished now. And um, I think you're right, there's been, you know, there really is a, absolute dirt, terrible. I mean, there's a dearth of uh, any sort of Marxist or radical, real radical politics on the left. And, but what that, you know, perhaps there isn't, there is a, you know, a non-accidental inverse relationship here, but yeah. there has been a flourishing of Marxist theoretical work since the, since the turn of the millennium, particularly. Um, when, when the, the rival, revival of interest in Marx and Marxism began. And that and it has a, been very sophisticated. You know, it has been serious. I mean, and partly, you know, it's been helped, I think, or it's been allowed to happen because the you know, when when the Soviet Union was the dom and the Communist Party, the British Communist Party was the sort of dominant influence. I mean, sort of Communist Party orthodoxy had a sort of stranglehold on Marxist discussion. And if, even if one didn't yeah. agree with it, you had to relate to it. It's, you know... It, Freed from that uh, absolute sort of dominance, you know, there's been a much more open and freer debate on the left, and that's been all to the good, I think, at, at the theoretical level. Yeah. Just because, I mean, because you raised it, I'd be curious to hear a bit more about what was, I mean, aside from your mother's influence, was there anything else that um, particularly appealed about Chinese Marxism over Soviet Marxism, and were you ever involved with Mao, kind of with formal Maoist or organizations or political groups or parties? No, never. Um, 
I mean, what I what was attractive was their in you know their 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 influence on the international stage um, uh, of Maoism, um, and and I was inspired by the example of the Chinese Revolution, um, which was you know which was still I mean. I, it was, you know, the, I can remember the start of the Cultural Revolution, and you know, it was a China was in ferment, um, and it was having a tremendously important influence on anti-colonial, uh, anti-imperialist movements uh, in the Third World, and and a very inspiring one. I mean, it seemed to be where the real, the real radicalism was. I was never, never uh, attracted to. Soviet Marxism. I mean, I came on the stage too late for that, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it really, you know, I, uh, but I was never involved with, I mean, Maoism in this country were, were, was a lunatic fringe. Um, yeah. I thought it just had no real, I mean, it, 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 it shouldn't perhaps have been very difficult to translate um, a philosophy born out of a peasant uh, revolt in yeah. you know in a in a totally different sort of country to conditions in Britain and no group that I uh, ever encountered had any idea how to do that. Uh, the Communist Party, the, the British Communist Party, the Moscow-based Communist Party was much you know it was embedded in the unions. It had a you know if I yeah. uh, if I'd been in, inclined to join any of the, those groups, I think I'd probably join the Communist Party, but I didn't and I wasn't. And you were never drawn to, given your kind of um, distance from the Soviet, the Soviet strand, but you were never drawn to Trotskyist oppositional politics within Marxism, or no? And I think that's probably due to my family upbringing. My my mother, who was the main political influence on me by far, was very hostile to uh, Trotskyism, and the role of Trotskyism in China was a very um, damaging one I think so I never never no I was never drawn to Trotskyism at all I was I, in fact I took me a long time to realize that some of the things they were doing particularly in the sort of anti-race uh, movement in the 70s and 80s was really good I mean it took me a long time to overcome my prejudices and look at what the SWP was doing with with any sympathy at all and that's my shortcoming that was that was you know I was slow about that yeah. So, um, and there's a few kind of branches in the in the conversation I wanted to pursue, um, but given that we're talking about kind of Marxism during the Cold War era and um, during mm. the 20th century, I suppose it makes sense that we um, explore some of those um, some of those uh, branches now. So, uh, you've told me in the past um, you visited or you've recounted how you visited both China and the USSR during the Cold War, and I was wondering if you could. Um, uh, recant it again and tell our listeners a bit about it. Well, it was very. I mean, i I was very fortunate. I, I was very fortunate to be. My mother worked in China uh, for three years between 1973 and 1976, at the very tail end of the uh, Cultural Revolution. This happened because she was working for the new China, the Chinese news agency Xinhua official Chinese news agency in London. And she said she'd like to go and work in China. She always had an interest in China, which went right back to her youth. Um, And they said, oh, no, that's impossible. 
cult, you know, the cultural revolution, there's such chaos, you can't come. Um, but then suddenly, literally, they said, you know, in 1973, they said, okay, you can come, come next week. Um, it was <laughs> crazy. So she upped sticks and went to China for three years. And during that period, um, the only, there were no tourism, there were no foreign, you, you could either be a, have business connections and go as a businessman. Uh, yeah. But the only way of going to China was as a relative. So, yeah. you know, I went as her relative. And wherever we went in China, we were always introduced as uh, Mrs. Sayers and her relative. <laughs> <laughs> so there I was. I, and I, we were given a very extensive tour. You know, they were showing us what they wanted us to see. But it was very impressive. It completely changed my political uh, outlook, my my life, my intellectual outlook. I mean, I became, I was really inspired. Uh, and then it was very hard um, when, you know, what had been going on in the Cultural Revolution was uh, was revealed. It was very hard to come to terms with that and to, and the, uh, the overthrew. The Gang of Four, Lin Biao and Cheng Jing and, and uh, you know, were very influential in the, in the press where, where my mother was working. My mother was actually very disillusioned by China. It was very authoritarian. It was very um, uh, feudal, she felt, and very hierarchical. Yeah. Uh, in many respects, she was, you know, she was, she was disillusioned by it. So she was disillusioned, but you were energized by it. Yes, absolutely. And she wasn't, I mean, she was, she was a very um, sane person politically. I mean, she was disillusioned, but she, she remained a Marxist and she remained a socialist. Yeah. But she just thought this is, you know, it needs to be, you know, there's a lot uh, to create a proper socialist society, in a, especially in a, tr a society as traditional as China, will require decades and, you know, years, not, it can't be done, you know, in, in, a, in a few years. And so, I mean, if she, did you, I mean, did you clash? Uh, did uh, it, so the fact that she was kind of disillusioned, it didn't um, wash over you at the time, or no, no, I wasn't. I didn't have particular illusion. I mean, I accepted her picture picture of what was going on in China. I was in no position really to to um, to question it. I mean, this was. I mean, she her it was her you know sort of day to day experience yeah. that uh, disillusioned her. What the Chinese were trying to do, she was very supportive of and remained so. Uh, but you know the Cultural Revolution. Nobody understood at the time, not not among the people I knew anyway, what was going on in the Cultural Revolution. It became a sort of faction, you know, very extreme and complicated set of faction fights, uh, almost civil war at times. Um, yeah. Nobody, you know, it dissolved into that, and that was a terrible, you know, terrible disaster really that happened. But I mean the. The uh, attempt to create a new sort of socialist, communist society, different from the Soviet model, to break with the Soviet model and create a more uh, 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 grassroots, democratic sort of socialist society, was one that um, she supported, I supported, um, and uh, you know, not to not to simply accept the divisions of the Cold War. 
and you know the sort of carve up of the international order which the soviet union by that time had pretty well done uh, though i think you know in retrospect i i, I you know i've been re- rethinking that because the soviet union did have a very good record of supporting uh, radical and revolutionary regimes all over the world, uh, even if even if within within certain limits. Whereas the Chinese, now that they've become an international power, have done none of that. Have simply pursued their economic interests around the world and have had been no support for. Uh, I mean, they've been strange enough. They've been supporting intellectual uh, Marxist movements. Uh, around the world, I mean, they they put on conferences and things, but they don't. Um, you know, there's no, there's nothing comparable to the way the Soviet Union was fighting the the Cold War and supporting uh, anti-imperialist movements against America, which I think was was admirable. I think the Chinese should do that more. So that follows to, I suppose, a question. I know you have, you've maintained links with China since. You've had graduate students at the University of Kent from China. And I was wondering if you had any sense about, um, you know, Chinese intellectual life, um, the status of Chinese philosophy today, um, how it sits in the broader kind of context of China and Chinese politics at the moment. Well, I mean, it's very, I mean, the thing about China, I mean, Marx is, I mean, I, you know, the philosophy in China is very diverse and there's a very large uh, part of contemporary Chinese philosophy, which is very much traditional Chinese philosophy, Confucius and Mencius and people like that, don't, don't really know, know much about that. But Marx's philosophy is, is flourishing in, in China and it, they do discuss, I mean, there is discussion, there is debate but within definite parameters. I mean, there, you know, there are limits to what can be said uh, in uh, either in philosophy or in universities in general about, uh, you know, about contemporary Chinese politics. But it's, I mean, but within those limits, there really is debate and discussion, and a lot of it goes on uh, under the heading of Marxist philosophy. So it's quite a lively and interesting area. Is it? I mean, I know on the bait. I mean, when we chatted about this before, you said that it kind of there. There is kind of, Marxist philosophy is kind of a placeholder in the Chinese academy for a much broader kind of philosophical debate that includes Western critical theory, liberalism, and so on. That's right. I mean, the, 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 there are two. Um, Marxism almost means two things in in Chinese uh, universities. There are two subjects. There's what they call scientific socialism. They train hundreds of thousands, I guess, of uh, Communist Party officials, uh, all sorts of people, teachers who have to who go out and teach Communist Party uh, ideology. They're sort of Communist Party, you know, hacks. I mean, that's perhaps a bit unfair, but I mean, you know, there's a huge industry in China yeah. teaching Communist Party ideology and the people who, who are going to teach that and pass it on. That's called scientific socialism. But there's another branch of what's called, what they call Western Marxism, which is completely yeah. different. I mean, where they study, you know, British Marxism, American Marxists, French, German, it's very, very 
broad and and scholarly and very high quality actually very good and that is you know as long as it doesn't become too politicized in the chinese context that's allowed to just go its own way and it doesn't inter- interact with uh chinese um, what they call you know Socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is a wonderful phrase, uh, which has yeah. very little, almost nothing to do with Marx or Marxism, yeah. is, um, yeah. you know, these are just two separate worlds. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's interesting to hear. Just to cycle back, um, you uh, you did also visit the USSR, and there you um, uh, remember you told me once how um, this was, I think, in either the late seventies or the or maybe the early no, 80s. mid eighties, mid eighties, mid eighties, yeah. and how depressing the visit it was. Oh God, it was it was so different to China. I mean, China was vibrant, alive. I mean, even within you know, definite, it's an authoritarian country within limit, limits, but. The Soviet Union, that which was right at the, it was the beginning of the Gorbachev era. I didn't even want yeah. to go to the Soviet Union actually before things began to liberalise. But I thought I'll go and have a look. And it was the most depressed. It was a police state. I mean, that was the difference. Yeah. China is not yeah. a police state. I mean, there are, you know, there are very definite police controls, but it's really had a completely different atmosphere. One felt surveyed. One felt. And, you know, everybody who I talked to obviously felt scared and, and, and you know, and very constrained in what they could say, which I have a feeling I've never had in China. Uh, totally different atmosphere, totally different atmosphere. Uh, and was that a, that was a kind of an academic trip? A no, no, that trip, was, uh, it was, a, it was just a tourist. I mean, a, a group, it's the only time I've ever been on a tourist group tour, I think. Um, and um, but I did arrange uh, when I was there. I tried; it took me a lot of doing. But I arranged to meet philosophers as, insofar as I could. I had a very amusing meeting with. Um, I'd arranged to meet a group of philosophers in in as it was then Leningrad, and yeah. um, we. I was told to go to this um, sort of palace um, where I think it was the uh, Institute of Philosophy or something had its had its headquarters. So I arrive in this building and go up. I mean, sort of ushered in upstairs, and there's a big, big room, and the light. These poor philosophers were all sitting in the dark. They didn't even switch the lights on until yeah. I arrived. But then they switched the lights on, and these people. I mean, it was impossible to talk to them. They were like tape recorder. They were just mouthing official doctrine which they clearly didn't really believe in i mean you know it was just they were just complete sort of hacks and robots and then when i finished and then we left the building and then they all sort of ran out after me and tried to get free books off me and (laughs) anything i give i was a terribly depressing experience i you know, they, yeah. but there's been a flourishing of Russian philosophy actually since, and of Marx. You know, the, the sort of some uh, Mar- earlier Marxist philosophers who were very persecuted under the Soviet regime. People like Ilyenkov, who's a really 
interesting yeah. and important Hegelian Marxist philosopher who, who, who was driven to suicide yeah. uh, under the Soviet regime has been revived. And there's, you know, so it's very small, I think, current Marxist philosophy in Russia, but it's a lot more interesting than it, than it was under the Soviet regime. I did meet other, I mean, that's perhaps a bit unfair, actually, come to think of it, because at international conferences, I met some um, uh, Soviet philosophers who, uh, you know, who were trying to think independently and were, were, yeah. were, were intelligent and interesting. They had a very hard time under the Soviet regime. I would say much worse than <coughs> Chinese Marxists have had. I mean, there. Are, I mean, I know Chinese Marxists though who've been really persecuted uh, as well. I mean, if you step too far out of line in China, they do really come down on you. I have a, a very good friend and colleague who visited me here in Canterbury, as a matter of fact. But he's, and it's got much worse under yeah. Xi Jinping. There was a lovely. Yeah. There was a sort of period of of loosening and 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 liberalism for about, I guess, I'm not quite sure who the, the people in charge were, but for about 10 years up until Xi Jinping took over, what, five years ago, there was, you know, there was a period of liberalisation where you could almost say anything within universities. Um, yeah. I mean, I was told you can say anything in a university, but don't say it outside, you know, and they can't publish it, and we can't publish it, but really anything goes. Anyway, this colleague of mine, this man who visited me here, has, I mean, he used to publish all sorts of things. That, I mean, that one of the most uh, uh, repressed sort of thoughts in, Ch in China is the idea of multi-party democracy. They really, any challenge to the, uh, to the uh, monopoly of power of the Communist Party in China is very, is not allowed to be expressed. Um, yeah. But he did repeatedly express that that idea in sort of indirect but very obvious and clear ways. Um, and he used to be able to publish his stuff, but and he certainly could publish it abroad. He published quite a lot of, of, of work in English. But re, And then he was suspended from his job about three or four years ago and told that, you know, he could no longer publish this sort of stuff, controversial stuff, even in abroad, and he would, you know, he'd lose his job completely if he if he if he did. And one of his books was withdrawn from circulation. So that does happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I suppose that um, takes us back to um, the state of philosophy and the state of academic philosophy. And you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned how Kent has been your academic home across your career. And it's also given us something of a, you know, something of an insight into Kent's um, radical background as one of those um, universities that was uh, that broke the intellectual mold in the 1960s and so on. Mm. And obviously today, I mean, humanities are under tremendous pressure in the modern university, and philosophy is one of those programs that is uh, frequently comes under threat. So it's, I suppose two two questions off the back of that is. In your view, I mean, could you have a university without a philosophy program? And relatedly, would you? How would you set about trying to reverse the decline in the humanities? 
gosh. Well, you, you unfortunately, I mean, it shouldn't be possible uh, to have um, a university without a philosophy program, but one's got to, you know, one's got to acknowledge that there have been Newcastle. Uh, they closed Newcastle's philosophy program down, uh, oh, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, more, 20 yeah. years ago. And it's never really properly revived since then. So, it, and Newcastle's a major university. Um, Indeed, yeah. It should not be possible to have a university without a philosophy department. Philosophy is an absolutely central uh, humanities uh, and theoretical discipline. I mean, it's just, I mean, it, it's unthinkable, but it, but, it has happened, and it could certainly happen again. And student numbers, I understand, I'm very detached from the university now, but student applications are very seriously down in humanities subjects, including philosophy, and philosophy is under a, a, a great deal of pressure. What to do about it? Well, I think, I mean, academics have been on strike. Um, you know, I think they've, I mean, and the strikes have been about pay and conditions of work, quite rightly, because they've been, they eroded so seriously for junior staff. I mean, when I think, I mean, I lived through the golden years of universities. I was phenomenally lucky, people of my generation. Um, and Kent, as you mentioned, you know, was a, became a sort of centre of radicalism in philosophy um, because we had tremendous freedom. Uh, it was a brand new university and we could teach what we wanted to. You know, it was a battle. I mean, we had real serious internal battles about it, but there was no, you know, it was it was actually very a very democratic university when I first arrived here, and um, uh, you know, we, we it was an excellent place to be. I'm very glad I you know spent my life here. It was it was uh, now though. I mean, it's you can, I mean, I guess it's financial pressures. Uh, but, I mean, I think philosophy, and I think trying to be too populist in philosophy is a mistake myself. I think the, I mean, I think we, people have got to keep teaching the great tradition of philosophy. It's a wonderful subject with a wonderful literature, uh, which goes right back and to, to just sort of teach sort of contemporary issues and uh, is, in my view, a mistake. People have to have a, an intellectual grounding in the history of philosophy, and it interests people. People, yeah. I mean, my experience, people like doing it. It's not not for everybody. Not everybody likes it, but you know, it's it certainly should be able to attract enough students in a reasonable sized university to survive. Yeah. So that takes us to. Um where we can uh, draw kind of some concluding questions, which is about philosophy specifically. Um, so you're now, I mean, you're known as a leading Hegelian Marxist scholar um, in the Anglo-American world. And I was wondering if you, and this is not a, it's not a simple question, but nonetheless, um, you know, I'll ask it. But I was wondering if you could tell us what you think, what you think makes Hegelian Marxism necessary and distinct in your view from the other possible uh, configurations of Marxism that are available? Well, I think Marx was a Hegelian. I mean, that's what, you know, if you really want to understand Marx, as Lenin said, uh, you've got to you've got to understand Hegel. Marx comes out of that Hegelian, uh, you know, tradition, and that's the, you know, that's the absolute basis of his 
thought. Of course, he reacts against it. He criticizes Hegel. But that's where he starts from. That's where his thought arises from. It's one of the essential components of Marxism. And I mean, I you know, to understand Marx, you've got ultimately, at least if you want to understand it at a philosophical level, you've got to engage with Hegel. That's what I'd say about that. And it's been one of the great uh, shortcomings, I think, of recent Marxism in the Western world, that for the last 50 years or so, the main traditions of uh, Marxist philosophy have been totally anti-Hegelian. First of all, there's been uh, sort of Althusserian structuralist Marxism, which is, you know, fundamentally anti-Hegelian, anti-historical. Um, yeah. And analytical Marxism, which is which comes out of the British tradition, um, which is also anti-Hegelian. Um, and that's been, a you know, one of my projects and of the colleagues who formed the Marx and Philosophy Society as well was to try and um, write, the, write the balance there and to try and reintroduce a knowledge of Hegel into British philosophy. There's always been a sort of anti-Hegelian tenor of British philosophy. It's always been empiricist and much more, you know, I mean, rather, you know, anti-Hegelian ever since the founding of analytical philosophy. Um, so, you know, but nevertheless... You know, you know, in the Marxist area, anyway, a knowledge of Hegel is essential, in my view. Yeah, and that, I mean, following flowing from that, there's been a very striking revival of um, Hegel, um, mm. you know, and I think, um, you know, very unexpectedly, um, in Western philosophy, in Anglophone philosophy, and even kind of an attempt to kind of do an almost an analytical Hegel. I'm yes. thinking specifically there of Brandon, but there's also Pippin um, at the University of Chicago. Yep. And then obviously, of course, um, you know, Slavoj Žižek himself. And so, there, you know, across those three, but all others as well, there's been a tremendous um, revival of Hegelian theorizing and thought in philosophy. And I was wondering what you made of that, um, how you appraise, how you appraise that Hegel revival and whether you think it's added anything new to our knowledge of Hegel or our understanding of, uh, you know, outstanding philosophical problems? I think it's been very, very welcome and, and, and well overdue. Um, you know, as I said, when we started Radical Philosophy, the poverty of the analytical tradition by then, it had narrowed, it had become technical. It was of no interest really to anybody outside a very narrow uh, set of people. Um, it, it totally excluded Hegel. It totally excluded existentialism, broadening out the uh, the the the, um, the 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 view of analytical philosophy has been absolutely essential. And as you say, there's been a real flourishing of Hegelian analytical uh, scholarship. You know, scholarship from an analytical uh, perspective on. Uh, Hegel. And as a result, I'd mention also the people you you mentioned. Charles Taylor was a very yeah, indeed, important yeah. figure in that, one of the first, um, and a very important uh, writer in sort of bringing in uh, a, a Hegelian view into a sort of analytical uh, context. And that's what we've tried to do in the Marx and Philosophy Society as well. People like um, Chris Arthur, Joe McCarney. Uh, Andrew Chitty, I mean, the people who 
participated in in our group of you know uh, not as well known perhaps as the people you mentioned but that's you know that's been our project too and i think we have contributed very significantly to uh i mean there there are real um there are real virtues in the analytical approach of of clarity of directness of of um of uh, sort of lot lot of of a sort of logical and rational way of doing things which brought to bear on hegel has been you know has been very clarifying and useful so uh, another i suppose another big question um looking back over your career um what would you rank as your most important intellectual contribution i think trying to develop a serious Hegelian Marxism in an intellectually rigorous fashion. I think there was very little um, work before me and my colleagues, other colleagues in the Marx and Philosophy Society particularly got working, you know, to take notions like dialectic seriously and try and develop them in a, in a, in a, in a rigorous uh, way and defend them against the uh, not very difficult, actually, the, against the, the sort of attacks and dismissal that you get from analytical writers, right from the start, no. you know, right from Bertrand Russell onwards. <coughs> but those attacks needed to be replied to and answered, and I think, and and the dialectical approach explained and defended, and that's what I've tried to do, basically, in my in my work to sort of produce a, 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 a rigorous and intellectually sound version of uh, Hegelian Marxism. And then a final question for you. So what are you working on and reading at the moment? Well, I'm giving some lectures at the moment, which really go right back. I mean, dialectic uh, was the first sort of aspect of Hegel and Hegelian Marxism that I got interested in. And I've sort of returned to that. I mean, through a sort of uh, a sort of journey, a sort of uh, detour through well, not detour, but I mean, a journey through um, moral philosophy, social philosophy, and now uh, back to uh, you know the most abstract but fundamental aspect of Hegelian Marxism, namely uh, dialectic. And I'm giving lectures at the moment. I'm giving one tomorrow, and I'm one on Tuesday under the auspices of the journal Historical Materialism. And I hope that they'll be published as a, as a collection. There, uh, This will be, uh, when I've done these lectures, the next two, there'll be eight of them. And that's really what I'm, I'm getting that together at the moment. That's what I'm working on. And, and anything, you're, anything you're reading that you'd recommend to our listeners? Oh, gosh, that's, uh, well, I'm reading, I, I, on that topic, I can't, but I will. I mean, it's 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 not really relevant to this. But the Black Jacobins by C. Yep. L. R. James, wonderful history book, really really illuminate interesting uh, yep. uh, sort of aspect of the effects of the French Revolution, which um, I certainly wasn't aware of before. Yeah, and uh, it's a fantastic classic. Mm. Um, 
Well, that's been uh, it's been great to have you on the show, Sean, and uh, thanks for uh, taking the time to um, to tell us. And it's been a really wide ranging and fascinating conversation. Well, thank you very much for um, you know for for doing it, for organising it, and inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm.